0: If you would, in your Bibles, to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, it's towards the end of your Bibles. It's right before 2 John and 3 John and Jude and Revelation. 1 John chapter 5, and let me begin by reading our passage aloud. It's the last few verses of 1 John, beginning in verse 13. John writes, and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. For several months, we have examined the question of assurance. Knowing you know Jesus, uh, knowing you have eternal life. That's what assurance is. It's that awareness, that, that knowledge, that confidence that you know the Lord, that you've been saved by God. That's why John wrote this letter. That's what we just read in verse 13. That's what this letter is for. John writes, I write these things. That's the whole letter. I've written all of this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. True believers can know. They can know that they are saved and destined for heaven. Now, in this series, I have sought to distinguish, as John does, between, although he didn't put it this way, between the root of our salvation and the proof of our salvation. The root is always Christ. If you've been with us in this series in 1st John, think of all the times throughout the letter John has reminded his readers of the work of Jesus Christ on that cross, the one who came by the water and the blood. The one who, with this very fancy theological word, the one who is the propitiation for our sins, the one who removed the wrath of God through his work on that cross. Right? When, when you are struggling, Christian, to know that you are saved, you've got to return to the root, to the basics of the gospel. Jesus Christ died for sinners. And that's why we fix our eyes not on us, but on him. Now, the proof of our salvation is that threefold test that John provides us in this letter. Do we have sound doctrine? Our faith must be in Christ, the Son of God, fully God, fully man, crucified and resurrected. Sound doctrine. Are we walking in holiness? That our lives must reflect, however imperfectly, the purity of our Savior. And finally, do we love the church? Our affection for God's people must be real and visible. Right? That, those, those three, those three things: a sound doctrine, walking in holiness, loving the church, that's the threefold test, the, the proof, the evidence, not the root not the root, it's not what we look to to be saved, but the proof that we have been saved. Now, I know as we're wrapping up 1 John today that some of you struggle with assurance, and maybe for some of you it is a daily battle to believe that God loves you. Maybe for some of you it's not daily, but, but regularly doubts creep in with regard to whether or not you truly know the Lord or whether or not the Lord knows you genuinely in a, in a saving way. And so you wonder regularly if you really are a child of God. And so my prayer for you has been that John's teaching in 1 John has been unusually helpful for you to take confidence in the gospel and to be able to look at these very basic tests and say, by the grace of God, you know, I'm not yet who I'm going to be, but praise God, I believe in his son. I'm walking in holiness. I'm loving the church. I pray that that John's teaching in 1 John is the means that God will use to grant you the assurance that God would have you to have as his child. Now, I'm also sensitive to the fact that not everyone uh, within earshot of me even claims to be a Christian. For some of you, the battle is not really with assurance of your salvation. It's with whether or not anyone is really saved, whether or not Christianity is in fact true You may be here because a parent forces you to come lovingly but forcefully week after week. You may be here because a friend brought you. Maybe you brought yourself and you're simply looking for a word of hope in a dark and trying season. My message to you is that there is a God, that he's a good God, that he has spoken to you in his word, and if you pay attention to his word, you'll realize that he wants you to know him. But you have to come to him on his terms. You don't, get to, you don't get to set the ground rules when it comes to God. You've got to come to him on his terms. And that means coming to him through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way. And so I've been praying for you, too, that you would meet Christ even today. In these final paragraphs, John unpacks for us what the life of Christian assurance looks like. In other words, what is the the fruit of knowing you're saved? What's the fruit of Christian assurance? And John provides five answers. I'm going to spend most of our time, I think, on the first two. But these five answers come straight from the text, God's word for us today, the fruit of Christian assurance. Here's the first. Bold confidence. Bold confidence. Christian assurance looks like bold confidence in personal prayer. Bold confidence in personal prayer. Look again at verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask... We know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. The believer with assurance has the confidence to approach God with his or her personal requests. And the confidence stems from the fact that God hears us. Verse 14 ends with those words, he hears us. Again, writing writing to Christians here, "God, God hears you. When you pray, God listens to his children. He inclines his ear our way, right? He's not too busy or too distracted or too tired to pay attention to the requests of his children. Uh, Kids often need to find a way to get their parents to listen to them. Parents don't always listen to their children. God is not like that. God always listens. He always hears. He happily bends down and opens his ears to the requests of his children. It gets better. God doesn't just hear our requests. He answers them. Again, verse 15. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. John seems to be saying that God gives his children what they ask for. I know right now that I have all of your attention. I know I do. The difficulty of this paragraph is in the greatness of the promise that God grants you all the requests that you ask of him. Right? It seems too good to be true. Like those messages you get on your iPhone that says you've won a million dollars. Like You know it's not true. If you've read through other parts of the New Testament, you've probably found promises that sound a lot like this. I want to take you to, to one right now. Look if you at Mark chapter 11. And listen to what, what Jesus told his disciples one day. This is going to give a, a, a short uh, excerpt. Mark chapter 11, verse 23. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Now, at first glance, this is ridiculous. What a ridiculous promise. You might think, you might be led to think if you simply believe hard enough that your faith is, if your faith is strong enough, well, God's just going to write you a blank check. You want a new job? Just pray. You want healing? Just pray. You want your kids saved? Just pray. Just rub the lamp and the genie God will pop out and give you what you want. And over the years passages like this have certainly been misinterpreted and misapplied and turned into sort of power of positive thinking messages. And it's not what Jesus in Mark 11 or John in 1 John 5 is teaching. And in fact, the key to understanding passages like this is actually found in 1 John 5:14. The promise of receiving Listen carefully. The promise of receiving what we request is conditional. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. We must ask according to his will. In other words, we are to pray according to God's desire and according to God's design. We're to pray according to God's desire and according to God's design. Just look at the context of these particular verses. What is God's desire for the Christian? His desire is spelled out in verse 13. It's that we would know we have eternal life. That's why the Holy Spirit inspired John to pen 1 John, that we would know that we have eternal life. God wants us to know that we have eternal life. God doesn't merely want us to have eternal life. He wants us to know we have eternal life. He wants us to be aware of that and to enjoy it and have all the joy that comes from the knowledge that we've been saved by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. This is God's revealed will for our lives, that we would know we have eternal life as believers in the Son of God. Verse 15, then, is a call to pray specifically for that. We read it in context. We're to pray for assurance. Pray for what God promises to give. Pray for what God promises to give, and you'll be sure to get it. Pray for what God has revealed in his will for you, and you'll be sure to find it. God isn't being tricky here. He's being straightforward. He wants assurance for you. If you want it, ask for it. And have confidence, have faith that God will answer your request. Now, this actually makes sense of Jesus' words in Mark 11. You can do this later in the afternoon. But if you go back and read Mark 11 in its entirety, if you read the context, if you see what's happening Uh, with the disciples, when Jesus gave them those words about prayer, you'll notice that these words about prayer come right after the disciples saw something. Do you know what they saw? They saw the, the, the cursed and withered and dead fig tree. The moment they saw that tree is when Jesus gave them these words about prayer. You see, Jesus had noticed earlier in passing by a fig tree that was alive and yet not bearing fruit, he'd seen this fig tree not bearing fruit, and he chose to curse that fig tree. And when Jesus, the one through whom all things were created, when he cursed that fig tree, that's when it withered and died. Now, when the disciples saw the, the result of Jesus' miracle, well, they knew that Jesus was making a point, right? They knew that this wasn't simply about a fig tree. As interesting as that may be, they knew that Jesus was using this miracle as a sign to teach them something profound about the kingdom of God. Namely, if you claim to be a follower of God but bear no fruit, well, you are as good as a cursed and withered and dead fig tree. Right? That's your future, if you claim to be a follower of God, but bear no spiritual fruit, you're no better than a dead fig tree. And the disciples got the message. And they they were certainly overwhelmed at this, right? How how could they escape God's judgment? How could they be sure that that they're bearing enough spiritual fruit? I mean, they look at that 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 fig tree, and maybe they're thinking, like, woe is me. You know, who here is, is good enough, God, to to follow you faithfully enough that we might be a uh, like a Psalm 1 tree that's bearing a lot of fruit. And Jesus' answer, have faith and pray. Have faith and pray. Don't you know this is the kind of request that I want to I answer for you? Don't you know this is my will for my people, that you would bear fruit, so I don't want you to worry. You know, let me tell you just how, how effective your prayers are when you are praying my will for you. It's like if you prayed for a mountain that it would move. I would move that mountain for you. Don't you know you don't have to worry about not bearing enough fruit? Have faith in me and pray, and I'm going to give you your heart's desire because if you're desiring to bear spiritual fruit, don't you know that's my heart's desire for you? And I love to give you what I want for you. Many of us are not used to thinking about prayer this way. Your private prayer journals, if you keep them, are probably filled with long lists of requests that are not even talked about in the Bible. And there's certainly a place for that. I'll mention that in a moment. But there is also a place, a big place, in fact, for asking God to give you what he's already promised to give you. I love how the Australian minister Graham Goldsworthy put it. He wrote, God loves us to ask for things he has revealed that he wants to give us. So simple. God loves us to ask for things that he has revealed that he wants to give us. Now, in my flesh, I know what I want. I want physical health. I want financial security. I want the salvation of my family and my friends. Does God want all that for me? I'm not sure, but I know God wants me to grow in love for him and his church. I know that. I know that God wants me to walk in holiness. I know that. I know God wants me to be patient and to persevere in my faith, even when life is really hard. And all these things, all these desires God has revealed for me in his word. And when I pray for these things, I should have bold confidence that God hears and will fulfill my request. But what do we do when we want when we want something that God has not revealed that he wants for us? Like our children's health. Like a spouse. Like a better job. Like a better marriage. What do we do when what we want in our lives is not something directly revealed for us in God's word? Let me give you a simple answer. We follow the example of Jesus. He saw the painful cross in front of him. And Jesus, who is fully man and fully God, but fully man, Jesus wanted a way out. And so he prayed for something the Father had not revealed. But notice how Jesus prayed. Luke twenty-two forty-two. 42. Father, if you are willing, if you are willing. This is Luke 22, 42. Father, if you are willing. Remove this cup from me. That's the cup of judgment. That's the cup of wrath. That's the cross. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So two times in that short prayer, Jesus emphasizes the reality that what's most important to him is not his desire for another way to save the world that doesn't include his crucifixion, His desire is for the Father's will to be done in his life. He prays according to the will of God. When we pray, so should we. This is how we ought to pray when we don't know what God wants for us. Father, not my will, but your will be done. Brothers and sisters, as you read the Bible, pay attention to God's revealed will for your life. This is what you ought to be asking for regularly, daily. Pray for these things. Pray for what you know God desires for you. And even when you aren't sure what God desires for you, again, think about health, think about the spouse, think about the job, and so forth. Well, pray anyway. But be sure to add if you are willing. And I, I'm not trying to be sort of legalistic and make sure, you know, you, you make sure you tack on, Lord, if you're willing or you're in sin. I'm not saying that, but that needs to be the posture of your heart. Lord, I'm going to ask this. I, I want this, but I want what you want for me more. So let me make sure, God, that, that you know that I know I'm praying this if you're willing, if you're willing to grant it. Pray the way God designs. All right, so that's, that's bold confidence in personal prayer, right, that's, a, that's a fruit of Christian assurance, right? Number two, effective ministry, effective ministry. We're examining the fruit of Christian assurance. Christian assurance leads to effective ministry among your church family. Christian assurance leads to effective ministry among your church family. Look at verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. Well, let's think first about this sin that does lead to death, all right? That's, we don't want that. So let's talk first about that. In light of all of First John, this sin that leads to death is the sin of those false teachers in 1 John who left the church because they denied that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. They claim to be Christians. These teachers who left the church, again, I think this is in Ephesus when John is an, is an old man, they left the church In Ephesus claiming to be Christians, but John calls them antichrists, right? Earlier on in the letter, he calls them antichrists because their doctrine is antithetical to everything Christ taught and everything that Christ is. They claim to be Christian, but their doctrine proved otherwise. These false teachers are unbelievers who rejected the gospel. And so, Like a a rock jammed in the sole of your shoe, they are jammed into unbelief. And they're even passing it along. And so theirs is a sin that leads to death. There's no hope for those who reject Christ is the King, the Son of the living God, the Son of God incarnate. You know, John doesn't say we, we cannot pray for those false teachers, but he does encourage us to focus our energy elsewhere. In other words, he makes it clear, look, I'm not, right now, I'm not telling you to pray for them. Right now, I've got a different prayer matter for you to attend to. But he's not saying don't pray for them. If you know a false teacher, if you're related to a false teacher, I mean, by all means, pray for them. But, but notice here that John is saying, but don't let your prayer for these hardened false teachers keep you from devoting yourself to a prayer ministry that is so fruitful and inevitably effective. And that's the prayer ministry that John is describing here because time is short. And so we should devote ourselves to praying for those committing sins that that do not lead to death. John wants us to pray for them, pray for those whose sins are, are not leading to death. Okay. Some have taken this to mean we should pray for those who gossip but not for those who murder, okay? Murder being, well, that's a really bad sin. That's a sin that leads to death. Gossip, unpleasant, but come on, you know, like not that big of a deal. I don't think that's what John here is doing, in part because I just explained what I think the sin that leads to death is, and in part because Jesus is so clear that we're really not to grade sins that way. You know, uh, uh, hatred and murder have the same root. Uh, Lust and adultery have the same root. So it doesn't seem to be that John is trying to get us to say, well, don't pray for the really bad sinners, but if it's kind of a, a light sin, we'll go ahead and pray for that. I don't think that's what's going on here. There's a better explanation. It's not the severity of the sin that concerns John. It's the posture of the sinner. Let me explain. Someone who is truly brokenhearted over his sin. Someone who is sorrowful over her sin. Someone who's repentant, maybe wanting to change, not quite knowing how, but, but genuinely wanting to change. That is someone who's committed a sin that does not lead to death. 2 Corinthians 7:10 comes to mind, where Paul wrote, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. It leads to life. It leads to salvation. It's a, it's a sin that, that doesn't lead to death. How do you know? Because it's accompanied with godly grief. And so John says here, look, when you see someone like this, when you see someone who's committed a sin, perhaps immediately confronted about that sin, and you see there's, there's godly grief at least brewing, well, you've got a job to do. Right, God has given you a ministry. Like, I don't care if you're a pastor or not. Like, Christian, God's given you an effective ministry. Your ministry is to pray for, and I think it's safe to assume, and with your brother or sister. Right, take his sin seriously. John says, ask, and God will give him life. In other words, your ministry of prayer for a brother or sister struggling in sin is the means that God has ordained to help a brother or sister fight against his sin and find salvation on the day that Christ returns. Like God has ordained your prayer to do that. Like your prayer, like Joe Christian, like Sally Christian, that like your prayer has been ordained by God to bring struggling sinners to the throne of heaven, to the throne room of heaven. How amazing is that? An effective ministry for the children of God. Now, this verse verse fits, I think, really well with Hebrews 3.13. You know, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We talk about that a lot at Mount Vernon. That's the exhortation ministry. We love talking to one another. We love encouraging one another. We love exhorting one another. We don't so much love rebuking one another. That's really hard to do. But, you know, we, we get it, like theologically. We need to roll up our sleeves and get in one another's lives. And we need to, we need to talk with one another. And that's, 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 really, that's really great. But exhortation is just part of the plan. We must pray. God is the one who grants genuine repentance. So we pray, ask, ask, not like ask them, ask God, and God will give him life. So in Christian circles, we talk a lot about accountability. Accountability groups, they're great. You get together with uh, fellow believers, and you talk about how you're doing, and how you're struggling, and what's going well, and that's an accountability group. Sharpening one another's iron sharpens iron. Just this morning, I was in a Sunday school class focused on the topic of biblical counseling. How great is that, giving people counsel from the Bible? It just seems so obvious. Never stopped us from giving a class on something obvious. You know, biblical counseling, accountability, these things are really, really, really great, but they aren't everything. We need to pray because it's God who changes hearts. It's God who grants life. So the fruit of Christian assurance includes both bold confidence in personal prayer and an effective ministry among your church family. And so my my exhortation to you in light of this is as you are engaged in discipling relationships at Mount Vernon and in the midst of those discipling relationships, as it becomes evident to you that there are patterns of sin in the lives of the people that you're getting to know, which is inevitable, right? There's patterns of sin in all of our lives. I mean, again, unless you are Jesus, there's going to be patterns of sin in your life. And if you let people get to know you well, they're going to see those patterns of sin. It's just inevitable, right? Well, what do you do then? Well, yeah, you talk to them about the Bible. That's super great, you know, and biblical. But do you ever stop and pray that God would do a work? Recognizing, I can be the best Bible teacher on the planet, but unless God acts, no good is going to happen, right? So every Sunday morning before we come out here to sing and preach, those of us who are involved in the service, we gather and we pray for God to work. Why? Because unless God is at work in our gathering, it's just a big social club. There's an effective ministry in the family of God, when you ask God to be at work in one another's lives. All right, number three, comforting refuge. Comforting refuge. In other words, those with Christian assurance will find a comforting refuge in God, who is their protector. Verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, verse 18 begins with the truth that John has repeated throughout the letter. True believers will walk in holiness. We will not keep on sinning. In other words, if you're a Christian, you're not going to sin as badly this year as you sinned last year. You're going to grow in holiness. You're going to grow in grace and in godliness. That's, that's all that, that John is saying. You're going to grow. I'm, 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 I'm often less concerned about like, where you are spiritually right now and more concerned about where you are spiritually right now compared to where you were five years ago. Because so often we compare ourselves with like the people sitting across from us in the pew, when really that's not most helpful. You really need to be comparing yourself to where you were. All right? You need to ask the question, am I growing? Not, am I, you know, am I like John over there? But am I growing compared to where I was before? And if you're a true believer, you're, you're gonna grow. The, the question, however, is, is why? Like, how can one assert with such confidence that a, a true believer is, in fact, grow, going to grow spiritually, that, that he or she is not going to be the man or woman he was a few years ago, a few months ago, a few weeks ago? How can we be sure of that in a world filled with so many temptations? And there are many temptations in this world. The answer is found in the rest of verse 18, where John writes that he Who was born of God, now that's Jesus, Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, he who was born of God protects him. That is the the believer, the one whose faith is in Jesus. He protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. The evil one finally has no control over him, no ability to shipwreck his faith, in other words. God is with His children, protecting them, guiding them, growing them. Uh, le- let's, let's think about a few examples of this we find in the pages of Scripture. You don't need to turn to them, but in first Samuel, chapter 17:45, little David is standing before giant Goliath. And David David knows he's not alone. Listen to what David tells Goliath that day on the battlefield. I'm going to quote right from the Bible here. Listen to what David tells Goliath. David said, you, Goliath, you come to me with a javelin. Right? Not like Olympic javelin. Think like, well, I guess you could die by an Olympic javelin, but I'm just saying this is an armory. This is a weapon. Right? You come to me with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, who, you, who you, whom you have defiled and defied, right? God was with David. David said, I, I come to you in the name of the Lord. I come to you recognizing God has my back. Have at it, Goliath. God has my back. Right? I come to you in the name of the Lord. God was David's comforting refuge and his protector. Another example, in the Gospel of John, Chapter 10, in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, Jesus is, he calls believers sheep. So Jesus calls you and me, we're sheep, smelly sheep, right? He calls us that. And he identifies himself as the shepherd. And he says that the sheep are to take refuge in their God, right? Like David, sheep are protected by the Father, and by the Son. Listen to John chapter 10, verse 27. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. doesn't mean they'll never die physically, but they'll never again die spiritually. They can't be defeated by sin and by death. Jesus continues, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father, Jesus says, are one. So trials come like tornadoes, temptation strikes like lightning, but true believers won't perish, they won't be destroyed. They'll continue to grow in godliness. Why? Because if that's you, you're in the Son's hand, you're in the Father's hand, which in the great mystery of the Trinity is one hand. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul explained to Timothy how God helped him through a very, very difficult season. A very difficult season. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. Paul didn't give up, not because he was the greatest, not because he was an apostle, but because he knew that the Lord stood with him. Brothers and sisters, these texts are clear. We live in a dangerous world. First John 419 says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The world is a spiritually dark place. But if you've been born again, if you are God's child, you are, as John wrote, from God. He is your protector, your comforting, comforting refuge. Number four, sweet communion. Sweet communion. Christian assurance means you have sweet communion with Christ. Sweet as in good and enjoyable. Communion as in an intimate relationship with another person. Look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. 1 John 5, 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, John there never uses the word communion, admittedly, but the idea is there. The Christian has a real, deep, and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And the close of 1 John reminds us of the beginning of 1 John. Look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. Look at what, how John begins the letter. He says, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy May be complete. In other words, there is a fellowship and a joy that come from knowing not just one another, but from knowing the Father and the Son. And this joyful fellowship is communion. Communion with Christ. When we submit our lives to Christ, He becomes our God, and we become His people. Now, we are naturally left to our own devices, stubborn, self-centered, proud independent people. We don't like being corrected. We don't like being controlled. And I'm not trying to be negative. I'm just being honest. That's what we're like. We're prone to defend ourselves and constantly tempted to think or to wonder if we, in fact, are the reason for any success that we might have experienced in our lives. But look what John says there in verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him. Do you see where understanding comes from? It comes from God. If you are a Christian, you likely study your Bible. You list, you're listening to a sermon. I think you're listening to a sermon right now. But where does understanding come from? How, do we, how does what we learn in our head come to reside in our heart? It's a gift. We don't earn it. Right? We we certainly don't deserve it. It's a gift from God. Right? Understanding comes from God. And why does God give us this understanding? What's the end game? What's the goal? Why does he grant us insight into his word? Look at the text. That we may know him who is true and we are in him. So that that we might know the one we're in. That's why God gives us understanding. Right? The, The sermon. Uh, about God's word is just a means to a glorious end. The, the, the hope and prayer is that God will take the words, give you understanding so that you can know better the one Christian you are already in, the one who is true, Jesus Christ. Our understanding of God is for communion with God. It's so that we can know Christ intimately and personally and deeply and joyfully. This is really I just see so much wisdom in in how John wraps up the letter. So possible to have a lot of head knowledge, to read many good books, to have sound theology. It's possible to have that head knowledge, but not know the Son, not be in the Son. You can be part of a healthy church, a doctrinally sound, Bible-believing church and yet be spiritually dead because you don't know the son because you aren't in the son. You don't have communion with the son, right? This sweet communion doesn't come from sound orthodoxy, though that's required, and it doesn't come from church fellowship, though that's essential. Now, this sweet communion, which you're a, if you're a Christian, you desperately want, you long for, right, it comes from Christ, Christian assurance is the confidence Christ is your Savior. And you are a sheep in his pasture. And this assurance leads to sweet communion with him. And what does this communion look like? It looks like resting in the finished work of Christ, crucified. You don't earn a seat at the Lord's table. Each seat is purchased by the one who came by the water and the blood. Think of all those parents in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory who went out and purchased like thousands and thousands of golden tickets, holding to, hoping to get selected, find the winning one. No, salvation doesn't come that way. We don't buy the ticket. Christ buys it for us, gives it to us. He gives himself to us. We receive him. And this means you never need to prove that you're good enough to be a Christian. You can't do it because you aren't good enough. No one is good enough. Understanding is a gift, not a reward. Sweet communion is resting in the truth. Christ is good enough for us. His work is sufficient for our salvation. What else does sweet communion look like? It looks like knowing Christ loves you. Knowing Christ loves you. And this is difficult for us to get our minds around. if someone asks how we're doing spiritually, so easy to say, well, I've been getting up early and having good quiet times. Or, you know, I've been finding ways to serve the church. Or, you know, I finally joined a church. Right? It's harder to say, well, friend, I have been experiencing the soul-satisfying love of Christ in my inner being. We don't naturally say that. And yet that's exactly how Paul prayed for the believers in Ephesus. He prayed in Ephesians 3.18 that, and I'm quoting now from the Bible, that they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Do you? know that kind of love. Regardless of whether you, f- you feel loved by others in your life, regardless of whether you feel loved by your spouse or by your kids or by your parents or by anybody, do you know, that, do you know the, the height and the breadth and the depth of the love of Christ? Because that knowledge is the revealed will of God for you. That's the knowledge of sweet communion. And unless... Well, I hope, I just want to say, I members of Mount Vernon, I hope and pray that you are growing in love for one another. I mean, I really want that. I so love it when I see you loving one another. It just warms my heart. I want this to be a great church, a church where you find rich and deep and meaningful relationships. But unless you are growing in your love for Christ, then we, once again, are just a social club. And the Spirit of God is not in us as a church. Because where the Spirit of God is at work, communion with Christ is growing. This morning, we're finishing 1 John by working through how assurance plays itself out in the Christian life. And John has described both confidence in personal prayer, effective ministry in the local church, comforting refuge in Christ, sweet communion with Christ, and now fifth and finally, satisfying worship satisfying worship of Christ. Look again at verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, this may be the most stunning conclusion of any letter in the New Testament. John's gospel begins with those famous words, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And now in First John, he ends on a similar note, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Good Friday, which is right around the corner, is not special because they condemned a man and sentenced him to death on a Roman cross. Now, Good Friday is good because that man was not just a man. He was the God-man. He is the God-man. God the Son incarnate, fully man and fully God. Because he was fully man, he could really die. And because he is fully God, he could die in the place of everyone who would ever turn and trust in him. And that's what makes Good Friday good and Easter inevitable. By ending his letter with a declaration of Christ's divinity, by ending his letter with such a clear statement that Jesus is God, John is throwing down the gauntlet. He's telling us that this letter is about more than Christian assurance. Right? It's about more than that. Ultimately, this letter is about Christian worship. Who are you going to worship? It's about wrestling with what you're going to do in light of who Jesus is. That's how John ends the letter. In Christ, we find Christ. We find satisfying worship of the one and only God. And this explains that unusual, that everyone kind of chuckles. I heard the chuckling every time I read this. And oh, by the way, little children, keep yourself from idols. It's such a great way to end. Don't let anything or anyone get between you and Christ. Every day, you're going to be tempted to crown something king. Maybe it's a person. Maybe it's a spouse, a friend, a boss. Maybe it's a thing, a a job, your future, your flesh. John knows you face temptations. He, He says, keep away from them. Keep away from anything and everything that you would crown as your king in the place of Jesus Christ, the one true God. Only he can satisfy you. The British theologian John Owen put it this way. He wrote, the saints, that's Christians, the saints delight in Christ. He is their joy, their crown, their rejoicing, their life. Food, health, strength, desire, righteousness, salvation, blessedness. Without him, they have nothing. In him, they have all things. You will worship something. No worship is more satisfying than the worship of Christ. Without him, you have nothing. With him, you have everything. Andrew, where are you? Ah, that was so easy. Thank you. Andrew, you are about to be baptized. And this is your testimony this morning. Without him, you have nothing. Does it matter what you know? Does it matter your education? Does it matter your health? Does it matter your degrees? Without him, you have nothing. But what you're about, whatever you say up here, What you're saying is, with him, you have everything. God can take everything away else. But with him, you have everything. And this leads to bold confidence in personal prayer, effective ministry in the local church, comforting refuge in Christ, sweet communion with Christ, and satisfying worship of Christ. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you for the letter of 1 John. And we pray, we do pray, that you would grant us assurance in him. We pray that none of us would grow weary in doing the good of examining our own hearts, seeing whether or not we are truly in the faith. But Father, we pray that that self-examination would in no way lead to discouragement, but always lead us to Christ. That we might praise you as long as we live. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray all of this. Amen.